Growing up, my academic, which later on translated to work achievements, has always been a huge part of how I measure my self-worth. This is the first time in my life where I've actually put down my sword and go like, hey guys, I'm out of gas. I don't find anything left. I was going so far negative, I've got nothing left. I think people around me could see that. I was 25, so as any people would, they go traveling. I had less than 10k at the time and I needed to rebuild my finances. One of my friends I met throughout this period, he was like, do you want to come to Vietnam? I was like, yeah, I'll be here on Tuesday. I booked a ticket to go to Ho Chi Minh, which is Saigon. He just sent me a hostel address and I'm literally jumping on a plane to go to a foreign country to meet a friend at a hostel. I got scammed right out of the airport with the taxi drivers, obviously. They just charged me triple or something. Hey everyone. Welcome to episode 72 of the So This My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Ling Ya, and today's guest is Vincent Wei, Head of Growth at V, a web-based video editing tool that recently raised $35 million from Sequoia and is one of the fastest growing startups by revenue in the world. In this episode, we learn about what it was like being a first-generation immigrant to Australia at a time when he couldn't even speak English, and how while he was at university, he built one of Australia's first coding school for kids, teaching thousands of them engineering through games like Minecraft. He began the second start, but that ended badly. So much so that Vincent decided he needed to travel the world. He later joined Airtasker, one of Australia's largest marketplace for services as employee number three, at a time when the company was burning $30 million annually. He was part of the team that turned it around, and Airtasker eventually IPO'd in 2021. And now, Vincent is the head of growth at V.io. If you want to learn more about how Vincent got to where he is today and what it means to have a growth mindset, then this is the episode for you. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I think moving from Taiwan around 11 was definitely a big cultural shock. I still feel the impact of that to me even now as an adult, like towards my late 20s. I think one of the things I realized was it was a lot harder to find common things, especially when you were kids coming over. The day to day of going to school, obviously, besides having really different language barriers, when you first started, it's very difficult to connect with friends. There were a few things that was very universal, like Pokemon, which transcended across culture and the other thing that transcends the culture is a love for food. <laughs> and so I have this kid, George, and he introduced me to a lot of Greek food that I've never experienced. Baklava, which is like this pastry sweet. He was like, oh, my mom will make this. And if you can get your mom to make the dumpling that was in your lunchbox. And this was like, I've had this dumpling just every day, day in, day out, because my mom's kind of single parent here. Right? I'm struggling. I didn't get to pick what we get to eat. And so it was one way for me to diversify my lunchbox back throughout school. And I loved it so much. And we made friends, you know, like, so yeah, it was definitely a massive shock. But then there was different things I realized over time. Once my language was good enough, I was able to connect through Pokemon cards, foods and sports, playing handball or something like that. So that was great. You mentioned language several times. Isn't there a story concerning Harry Potter? Yeah. So when I came to Australia, I knew how to speak Hokkien, I knew how to speak Mandarin, but my English was non-existent in the sense that, yeah, I've done a few English classes back in primary school, but they just teach you saying, my name is Vincent and I am 11 years old, 12 years old. The grammar was really difficult and I really, really struggled because everyone was telling us to learn. 
you can't rely on English, Chinese. You, you got to let that go, and you just got to immerse yourself. And the magical source that we found was that I actually have a love for reading ever since I was young. And at the time, Harry Potter was massive growing up for us. And so when I left, J.K. Rowling just released up to. The Goblet of Fire, and that get translated to Mandarin, which usually take one to two years before the books get released. And so here I am, just moved to Australia, and the Order of Phoenix, which is the next book, got released in English first. It will take another year or two before the Chinese comes out. And so my mum was like, "I will only buy you the book in English." And that became a massive driver for me to learn to read because I wanted to find out what happens next after spoiler alert, like Cedric Diggory got killed by Voldemort, and the Voldemort's back. It's such a big cliffhanger that I had to just push through, and that was what actually got me started to read and to actually another discussion point with my friends back at school. I imagine that being Asian as well, you must have done really well in school at the time. Yeah, I think coming here, I really, really struggled. I think a huge part being that English not being your language, it's really hard to understand any of the tests and what they're trying to ask you. I was virtually just looking at the test paper in front of me, and every single question that had a blank answer, I know I would struggle, <laughs> so I would just leave it blank. But anything that comes with some sort of multiple choice or some sort of a thing that I could game, I would approach it probabilistically. Wasn't the turning point when you were in grade eight? What's the story there? Growing up in Chinese culture, we've had this proverb. We spoke about this in Chinese, which is "少壮不努力，老大徒伤悲 If you don't work hard when you're young and you just played like all your life away, then you're gonna be, I guess, like very sad and miserable when you become older because you haven't saved, you haven't invested and built yourself towards something. And so there was kind of these moments where I sit down, and it was a massive sense of like I didn't want to let my parents down, and that became a massive driver throughout a huge part of my life of why. As well as a sense of I don't want to be, you know, how the proverb described me when I get older, which is sad and miserable and and a failure in some way. I guess at the time created the association and the story because I guess that's what my parents believe. That's what a lot of people around me believe. All the aunties and the grandma believe was you got to do well at school and you got to do well at this kind of thing to succeed. And so I sat down at year eight and I realized is that. I needed to really commit myself; otherwise, I wouldn't have a successful life. Like I would live a very miserable and and unhappy life. The other thing to kind of kind of paint a bit of picture on is when I first came over. It was towards the end of my primary school years in Australia. We kind of have the culture of where it doesn't really matter where you go for primary school. It's more about creativity and fun and just learning and getting that good basic foundation of language and arithmetic and creativity. But then, when you get to high school, this is where like things start. So you're kind of working towards, I guess, a university degree. I think this is how a lot of kind of parents used to think of it. And when I came, I came at a, a time where everyone's preparing for the entrance exam into these like selective, prestigious high school, or some people being preparing their kids for school application for years to come. And the really good school, really selective. Yeah, because I just got here, I had no network, I had no language ability, I couldn't get into any good schools. So I ended up at this school, which was. Definitely a little rough around the edges. It was an old boys school with a lot of rugby and boy culture that I think my parents definitely didn't like. But it was better than the other alternatives that they think at the time. And so it was kind of also a conversation of, hey, you could look at a transfer, but you really need to pick up your grades. And so yeah, I sat down and I I had this chat with myself. The internal dialogue was, if I don't pick it up, then I'm going to be a drop kick, which is Australian slang,、It、just means like you're gonna be. On the street, you're gonna be useless on the street, and so I really worked hard that year and 
it was incredible how things flipped around. I remember I got 17% on a test. Like, how do you get 17% on a test? Uh, it was for German and I just did not care. And I remember flipping around, I got 97% in year eight. Like, it was such a drastic change. I was quite shocked at like what I could do at the time as well when I applied myself. Funny enough, 97% German earned you second place. I have this Greek friend who I'm, I happen to be lifelong friends with now, Luke, and he got 99. I love that you still remember the numbers. I remember because I worked so damn hard. Like you know, a 13 year old, you have the discipline to stick with something for a whole year. And you're like, what? I only got second. Someone beat me. But yeah, anyway, Luke is that friend. And yeah, it was a crazy year. And then towards the end of it, I applied at different places. And I actually got offers to go into a few of these selective schools and also a private school who's offered me a, a scholarship and what was the story behind you doing electrical engineering at the University of New South Wales? Was it something that your parents encouraged you to do or not? All throughout high school, I think this pattern of thinking I'm a failure, thinking I'm a dropkick, and then having to like sit myself down and really pull through with success has been kind of the driving force of how hard I work and all those things lead to the point where I think I was definitely very burnt out multiple times over and over leading up to kind of the final year of taking my test and deciding what to do for university and stuff like that. Obviously my mom and I had another conversation. My mom definitely brought us up with a view of what success looked like. For example, it would be like, wow, look at so-and-so's son. They are a doctor wow look at your cousin she's doing medicine at brown oh wow that person's a lawyer and her partner is also a lawyer too that's been kind of ingrained and stuff so there was a few things like you know law med being the obvious ones everyone gets lost throughout their high school years you will also go to your parents and be like, i'm not sure what i should do they're like oh what do you think about medicine what do you think about law? I guess you can consider dentists too. These things will be presented and that would kind of be the only thing you get presented with. And then the stretch goal will be like pilots or like pharmacists or, like, oh, you can do medical science too. And then that would be a transition. I guess that's why a lot of like, Asian friends grew up to be lawyers and doctors. You're not missing much. <laughs> I mean, I'm speaking to one now. So <laughs> yeah. So essentially what led up to that was towards the final year, I was really burnt out and I think because I've grinded so many years to try and keep my marks up the reason I needed to do that was because I was on a scholarship and if I let it drop the school could rescind the scholarship which means I can't afford to be here and I have to say goodbye to my friends and I might have to go back to a different school where I could get pushed around and all, or something like that right so I guess it was a lot of pressure that I put on myself like it was almost like I needed to do this to survive at least that's what I told myself I cannot fail it was an option and yeah, so I think when I got to the final year, I knew the school couldn't really find me anymore. You know, I just knew they wouldn't do that. This is the last year. They've invested all these years of scholarship. They're trying to get me to contribute, right? Like, and I was so burnt out at this point. I was jigging classes. I wasn't rocking up. I was just wanted to run away in some way. As I sit on my final exams, I did decently well, but yeah, I didn't bother to work for my net entrance exam and I missed subjects like law and all those kind of stuff by a fraction of a percent or something, which means the path to entry wasn't a direct one. It would have to be something that I had to work around. So I actually didn't pick engineering. Funny enough, it was one of these Asian overachiever things. So I picked the next highest subject that's on the requirement list, if that makes sense. So these are done by supply and demand. So obviously the med and law being so competed against have some of the highest requirement entry mark in terms of like where you need to lie on the bill code distribution across the country. I missed it by a little bit. And so I moved down the next thing on the bill curve. 
which is commerce. Funny enough, a lot of people want to do commerce. But then I looked at commerce, I feel, oh, I don't feel that's enough. So I added a commerce engineering into my degree. And so I'm going to add that in there and pick up a five and a half year minimal commitment for whatever reason. Throughout first year of uni, I think my burnout didn't go away after the break. It just worsened. And so I pretty much flunk a lot of the subjects. I started to think about why am I doing this? I kind of came to the realization like nothing they teach me isn't something I couldn't learn somewhere else. And so I dropped commerce and I stuck with engineering. But then with engineering, you have to specialize. And there were so many specialties that I didn't know which one to pick. How I ended up electrical engineering was around 2016, Disney launched their first movie, which was Iron Man. And I loved Robert Downey Jr.'s enactment of Iron Man 1 so much. I even Googled this answer, I remember, and read it and people talk about, oh, doing mechatronics, but then ultimately it's a subset of electrical. So doing that is great. And that is exactly how I made my university specialization decisions that continue the rest of my career. I actually flunked first year. I was barely passing. And the similar notion of if I don't work hard when I'm young, I'm going to become on the street and a failure and a dropkick when I'm older. Like I realized I wasn't figuring it out. I could either just take a break, like leave and quit, or I just need to stuck it out and then do what I did in year eight, you know? And, and the story I keep telling myself, like, hey, you did it in year eight, you did it in year 12. If you don't do it now, everything you've worked for would have been wasted for nothing. So I set myself an arbitrary goal of, I want to get first class honors, which is the highest tier that you can kind of graduate with. On the bus to uni every morning, I will put my music on and I will play these uh, motivation soundtrack, like Eric Thompson, the hip hop preacher, Tony Robbins and all these people about not quitting, about failure is not an option, about how soft our generation has become and we got to keep pushing and like how we're so privileged. And yeah, so that was the mentality of driving myself. But I eventually made it. I eventually graduated with first class honors. Um, yeah. Do you feel like some part of that question was answered when you started Co-Create and you were teaching kids how to build games like Minecraft? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a pattern of my life. So towards the final year or something, it's when you think about like, oh, I'm so close. But then you start to think about I should quit. So one of the biggest frustration of me going through university, well, besides from like, you know, like not knowing my why and I hated all the exams. Anyone who's gone through university or who are going through it now will know that the success metrics of a university for all of us, it's like, we get a good job, a good career experience, a good internship experience on the other side. And so a year into university, every single year, I would apply for internships and I would apply for work experiences that are relevant in the field. I will go to application, I'll go to career council and I like trying to write a cover letter. I've done 50, 100 easily per semester. You know, it gets to a point where it's so hard because I'm trying to write something that tells them how passionate I am. And that's just not really true. At this point in my life, I transitioned from all the motivational speakers into thinkers and entrepreneurs, like people who transformed something in some way. One of the biggest influences was Steve Jobs at the time. I think it was because iPhone just came out towards that period of time as well as iPad. I didn't understood what he did to Apple and the transformation that he went through, but I could see the product that he created and the impact that's had and the desire of everyone wanting an iPhone when it came out. Like it was revolutionary compared to what was before was the Blackberry with lots of buttons. I loved it and looked up to him having really original thoughts and not conforming to people saying, we want longer battery life. We want more buttons. And so in many ways, I was really inspired by that. And one of the things he said was, when you realize that the world are made up of people no better than you, they're just people, same as you've gone through the same struggle that you are doing now, you start to learn that you can shape it, you can change it, you can mold it and influence it. And that really made an impact on me. 
And so for the very first time in my life at around 2021, I set myself down during the summer break and I go, if nothing matters, and if you just don't care about the opinion of other people, just for once in your life, and you just think about doing what you're good at and what you love, what would that be? And the answer I came up with was there was parts of engineering that I loved. Learning and, and building new tech was very, very exciting for me. It was frustrating in the process, but when you see something work, you feel like you gain this superpower, this sense of empowerment, this excitement that comes with it. So that was one. And two was I knew I love kids. Growing up, I've always like taken care of baby cousins and second cousins, and I would baby kids hours on end and the mom would love me. And then the last thing I realized was I really like to teach. I've been tutoring kids all throughout my life. And that's when I find the most interesting. I think like it was one of the things that like, I think I would do this even if I'm not paid. I read about this Ikigai framework that people were talking about at the time. The other part of it was I've also taught at university. And towards the end, I was running a lot of first year electrical engineering and mechatronic students who have to learn basic electric circuits and stuff. So I was running the practical components. I really enjoy teaching because it's an element of unlearning, but then I'm also sharing that knowledge and also I can really relate to them. So I was really scared by my answer because my answer leads me to become a teacher. That was so out of grain. Like teacher was not an option on my parents successful. The guy I was doing my thesis with, he happened to be the head of school. And so he actually offered, do you want to stay at university? And then you could do your PhD and keep teaching as well. Because it's rare for him to find academic people who also enjoy teaching. My obvious gut answer is no, because I'm done with uni at that point. Essentially, yeah, I actually approach some schools to look at what it looks like to be a teacher. And I also approached university, so I had to do another year of master's in teaching, which turned me off massively. And then I also spoke to a few schools. They told me what the starting role and salary and progression will look like. I just trying to learn about the career. And I think because I grew up poor in comparison to the Australians here, as well as your mom will talk about, oh, like, wow, he's a doctor. He makes $400,000 a year or something. He's a specialist. And so what I end up decided was, why don't I try to create a program and tutor kids and teach them how to code? At the time, I think STEM, like engineering and science and the rise of these tech companies, Facebook, Shopify, Netflix was growing rapidly, become really, really big. And the parents could see that. And so the pitch to the parents was like, hey, let me tutor your kids. I'm running these classes. If your kids, you think reading about English is important. I think the future world is going to rely on tech. Everything's built on software. And so you want to teach your kids how to like think about engineering and then think about how to read code. And then the pitch to kids, and it's in reverse, that favorite computer game that you've always wanted to play and you wish you could just modify it or be able to hack it and give yourself a superpower. I'll teach you how to make that. So that was a pitch. And so I, I started teaching and tutoring kids how to code. And then, yeah, I ended up had like three to four kids who were crazy enough to say yes and sign up with me. And that was how the first class started. And then from there, the second cohort just exploded, right? From three to four to 86. Yeah. So unexpectedly, the way we went in was like, I went to some of the schools and I speak with friends and family and stuff. And I got a few kids who started and we started teaching it out of this particular school because they have the computers, they have all those things. And I couldn't afford computers at the time. I didn't have the upfront capital to go in. The second semester, I think we went back and I remember the school called me up and was like, hey, Vincent, we need to have a chat. I was a little bit worried because I was like, what's going on? You know, it was kids, right? In a school and you have to be really professional and careful. And you know, I was 21. I was like, you know, I'd... anyway, they were like, hey, so good news. We have 86 kids who signed up. They're starting next week. You're good to go. And at this point, I was, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. Like, you know, that, that's my like default response. It just came out straight away. Like, yeah, yeah, no worries. Yeah, next week. Yeah, we'll be here. All good. We'll sort it out. 
So yeah, yeah. So we're thinking of giving you three classrooms because they can't all fit and then we'll figure out the computers and all that kind of stuff and blah, 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 blah. The school was actually a very progressive school. So they were actually like supporting me. And, and in some way, the teachers, the principal at the time was kind of mentoring me a little bit throughout how to navigate this partnership with the school, which became valuable learnings. I was able to replicate over and over again later on. As I went away, it hit me. 86 kids. That's four classes of kids. And I sometimes already struggle with behaviors. Four kids get really excited. They're like running around. Like, what would this look like 20 times bigger? You know, like I was shocked. So I knew I needed help. And long story short was I went back to uni. I spent years with these guys and I know who was really intelligent, also very socially great with other people, with parents, with kids, all that kind of stuff. When I first teaching that class, I could charge $20 a kid and suddenly I make $80 an hour. And so it changes the game. I was really incentivized because for once, the financial was aligned with what I love to do. And that became really empowering. It, it took me to a whole new level of performance that I couldn't get before by just pushing because they know I've been teaching kids to code. And so I was like, hey guys, so the school came back. I got 86 kids and I don't think I can teach all of them. So what if I pay each of you $50 an hour and I'll give you guys a call and come teach the kids with me. So that's how it kind of got started. So next weekend, I brought a bunch of my friends for my payroll. We split up the class and it was very chaotic. It was very crazy. And it was a lot of kids. At some point, about like a couple of weeks in, the teacher came in, like one of the principal and the teacher came in, like, Vincent, we're going to check in. How are you doing? I was like, yeah, I think I'm good. How do you think I'm doing? Which like, look, I think you're doing amazing because the kids are so excited, which equates to chaos. And like the parents are talking about it, having really good feedback to me, I'm hearing all the great things. So just whatever you're doing, you keep it up. And so out of that, I think I learned a few really important lessons. I realized why the class grew from four to 86. It was essentially like referral, right? How referral works. This is how like Airbnb grew. This is how Dropbox grew. This is how I guess Zoom grew. I realized that the parents and the kids were referring each other. It also like gave me a taste of what compounding growth looks like and feels. And I learned like referral works really well and only works really by inviting their friends and their peers and makes the experiences better. And that has to be the foundation of referral as opposed to like a lot of people in like product and growth. Now I work, they go like, oh yeah, we should add an invite your friend button here and then just see what happens. Right, like it was like a, a throw a dart in the dark as opposed to like, you know, thinking about that. The second thing I learned was I got a taste of entrepreneurship. I guess I didn't know it was called entrepreneurship at the time. Got a taste of it was to no longer be on a paycheck. I started to learn the the impact of how on one hand I was packing show. I was like 17 to 24. Tutoring was 30, maybe 40 at university. But then now with 86 kids, I hired my friend. The net revenue per hour was a thousand six hundred and something. And if I pay each of my friend 50 bucks, they're super happy by the way. They're excited, they're ecstatic, they got paid that much. I make easily over a thousand something a week, just per hour class. And that changed my mind. I was like, wow, how many hours of one-on-one math do I have to grind versus doing this? So it started to change the way I think about things. You said you weren't on a paycheck, but weren't you working for Suncorp as well? Yes. So this whole thing started towards the final year of my university because I wanted to quit and it was the only way to keep me engaged and not quit. And my thesis supervisor at the head of school at the time, and he knew I was running this thing. He was fascinated. He got kids himself. He said, this is great. I will put my kid in it hundred percent. And he's like, hey, Vincent, have you done your internship yet? I was like, no, I've been too busy like figuring out how to write courses and teaching kids. And he's like, you need an internship to graduate. I was like, crap. And this was like toward the end of the year. And I've had very bad experiences applying for internships. And my dreads start to come in. I, I remember this, like my heart sank. I was like, crap, if I don't get one, I wouldn't be counted as a graduate. 
And I was so done with university. I need to get out. I remember I went on all the grab websites. Like everyone's like, oh, come back next year. Or you got to be in the penultimate year. Um, I was like, I'm in my final year. And I've way passed everybody's application period. And I go around my year group, I ask everybody, they've all applied. And I really start to panic. Luckily, I scoured the web and I found these like three opportunities opened up. And so I was like, well, okay, it's three CV instead of 50, but I'll do three. I actually yeah, applied to three places. I got offer back at all three. So the strike rate is completely different. I realized what I changed was at the top of my CV, every time people always put their marks and maybe what they're doing for their thesis and then maybe volunteering or some sort of other work experience, right? But instead of doing that, I was like, okay, I'll put my mark at the top. And then the second thing is I'll put my thesis too. But then the last thing I put down, oh, I built a business that made this much in the first year and this year. And then um, I employ a team of four people at the time or something. And everyone wanted to have a conversation. It was interesting. And now I'm looking back on hiring. Yeah, if I see someone like that, 100%, I'd be interested. I went through all three different companies' interviews. And one company was Suncorp. And for people who don't know, it was one of the top 10 publicly listed bank and financial service company in Australia. Um, it was also the biggest insurance company. It is the biggest insurance company still, I think, in Australia, Oceanic, and some part of the Pacific region. And then the second company was this thing called Imagination Tech. They're essentially a sub subcontractor for Apple, and they design about 10 to 15% of all the um, iOS chips at the time. It was a highly technical, technical role. And then the last role was in renewable energy space. They make uh, solar panel like accessible to everyday homeowners. And then they figure out a way to reduce the electricity bills through installing those. They all made an offer. And that startup company was growing so fast. I remember reading up about it. It was more than four or five X revenue in one year. And it was only a team of 20 something people. But ultimately, I think some of that Asian upbringing is so ingrained in me. And so I chose Suncor because it was the company that I can walk down the street and my mom could go, is that where you work? You can point at a logo on a big billboard somewhere. I'll be like, oh yeah, that's where I work. So yeah, that's what I picked up as an internship. And I still ran the coding courses and stuff I had as a side hustle. And obviously continue until next year. I've completed my requirements. That means I'm graduating. You know, <laughs> I need to go find a full-time job. What I was doing was not considered a full-time job. It was tutoring, right? My parents think it's tutoring. It's like you're just tutoring maths and stuff to make a bit of pocket money. So at the time, I was looking at the three roles that I described. Obviously, one was very technical. And I think throughout my experience, I knew I wasn't going to be the best at it. And then the startup role, I think... In hindsight, I would have loved to have taken that, but I was so culturally washed to go to a bigger company, which is what I did. I'm guessing you didn't know anyone in the startup world at the time as well. I don't think startup was a thing in any other part of the world at the time, with the exception of Silicon Valley. There was also a bit of a quirky stigma around it. What if it doesn't work out? What if you fail? Then again, this narrative, you work so hard for all your university and then you have this one shot to get your foot in the door. You're giving up all that to go and start something. Yeah, so there was a lot of fear and stigma around it. Ultimately, I went into Suncorp. I was astounded by some of the people I met in there in the sense of like, they were young and hungry and ambitious people who were trying to make their way up the ladder. There were also people who'd been there for 20 plus years. They, they openly say, I was like, oh yeah, I'm just waiting to get retired and then I can't change. If I change, then I don't get this big retirement payout because of how long I've been in the company. And I was just like, well, good for you, but I don't think that's how I want to spend my 20s. That's not how I want to spend my life. My manager at the time, his name was Michael Jordan, we call him MJ. He was like, hey, Vincent, so we really like your work and blah, blah, blah. 
we developed this software thing that was kind of cool. We want to offer you a grad position. And my other kind of work husband, work friend at the time also got offered and we had a lot of fun playing a lot of ping pong together during the day. So I was like, oh, this could be really fun. But then they were like, oh, but you have to come in full time. And this is where I stopped. And I thought of how the guy spent 20 something years at this place and I could see how comfortable it was and how easy it was to do that. I think there's this sense of adventure in me that didn't want to. I was like, I don't think I want to work here full time would you consider a contractor role where I can come in on flexible days? And they knew I had this business on the side of running because during the interview, a lot of them was like, why do you want to apply here? I think in some way, like I can see looking back on it now, in some way they're, oh, I wish I had a business where I can run as free. So he was like, oh, are you negotiating with me? Yeah, I guess I am. I'm just asking. I think one thing you learn from pitching for clients at school is like you don't ask, you don't get, right? And then they're like, okay, so are you telling me if you don't get this flexible arrangement, you wouldn't accept the offer and you will walk away? I kind of like disconnected from that a little bit. I was like, yeah, I would have to really consider it. And he's like, okay, cool. And then the meeting ended there. He's like, let me think about it. Let me go and like have a chat with people. And then um, we came back a week later and he goes, are you sure you, you wouldn't take the grad role? Are you sure you wouldn't consider it? Because that's what we offer. Like it's very uncommon. We don't really do that for other people. Are you sure about that? And I sat there, I thought about it. I was like, yeah, I, I think that's what I would like. I still like the flexible role. I was like, okay, cool, cool. And then we stood up and then I stood up. I don't know why he stood up. So we stood up and then we shook hands. And then he's like, okay, well, yeah, we usually just do the grad role. We're about to walk out. And I thought, okay, all right. I was kind of like coming to terms with it. And then he hold on. He's like, hey, Vincent, hold on a second. He grabbed me. He's like, yeah. So I spoke with his manager and everybody. And they're like, yeah, we can offer you the contract role and so on and so forth. And then I was like, oh, and then I was a massive smile. So that's how that started. I went in as a data engineer. Very quickly, I realized I could get the work done in a day and a half. So that's how I juggled the two until I feel I was not spending my life wisely by staying there any longer because I wasn't getting anything out of it aside from just having a level of comfort that, you know, and also something to show my parents that I'm putting a suit on, I'm heading out at 8am and catching the work bus that everybody and I have a work pass on. I love that you said, if you don't ask, you don't get. I feel like everyone is saying this to me. I just interviewed someone two days ago and she said the exact same thing. So did you ask for, because there were two brothers, right? Who came to you and wanted to fund your next startup. Cody, what's the story behind that? I didn't ask for that. I think in some ways it's the right mentality because I built Co-Create, which is, um, you know, morphed parts of it into Cody. I built that on the premise of I need to build a profitable business. Otherwise, I can pay myself. And so first of all, the idea of startup still was unfamiliar to me. Secondly, so the idea of raising money was even less familiar for me. And in fact, I was brought up not to use credit card, not to take debt, not to take money from people. It became kind of really nice because when you start a business and, and go through this journey and, and you're working sometimes like really hard and really long hours, your friend doesn't understand. They'd be like, oh, we're asking him to come out on Sunday, but he just always tells us he's busy, right? So I'm trying to prepare for this next course for like, now we've got over a hundred kids a week rotating through. That's a lot of kids. That's thousands of kids a year. I want to go build that. And I'm also really excited. It'll be nice when I go out at 11. So I'll, I'll be at a party till 11 i'll be like i don't know what i'm doing i'm a bit awkward at parties all right uh guys i'm gonna go home i'm tired i'm gonna go home early and then i just go back and jump on my computer and start writing courses and stuff but yeah so i bump into ben and toby who was these two brothers one was startup background the other one from investment banking background at a pretty high level and so they both kind of left their jobs and they decided okay we want to start working with young founders and startups. And so they started a small VC fund for an accelerator fund, funding startups and, and bring them into a community to work together. My friend told me about it because he got funded by them. 
he made the introduction. I had a chat with him. And then toward the end of the chat, I kind of told them my story up to that point and how I taught at the school and stuff like that. Toward the end of that point, they were like, yeah, we'd like to fund you to start something. And they were like, look, co-create a great business, but it's a cash cow business. They wanted to see something more technical. They want to see something technological. And they knew I, I was capable enough to code. They wanted me to build something that is much more scalable and much more technical. And at the same time, I was also at a point where well, co-create was doing six figures a year. I didn't really know how to take it any further. The operation was very challenging for someone who's never operated a single thing in their life. You're essentially trying to run a factory, but with more chaos because you're not dealing with machines, you're dealing with kids who are full of creativity and full of energy and parents who are very protective of the kids and then want them to do well. And yeah, so that was how that started. I was tired. I've been working really hard ever since I've been at school all the way up to university. And instead of taking a break somewhere after or go traveling or do something, I jumped straight into building a business and then also working pretty much like three to four days a week at a job that other people would usually consider that to be their grad full-time role. It was intense and I was tired. But then I was like, oh, this opportunity probably only came right now. And I don't know if it's going to be there in the future. And so ultimately, I decided to took it for the learning. I saw it as a degree, a way to learn that I wouldn't otherwise have gotten anywhere. The premise of Cody is basically it's an ad tech platform for developers to learn how to code. And it's a bit like Lambda School, isn't it? They inspire you. You know, I was really passionate about education. I bumped into my co-founder at the time, Mitch. He was technical, but he was also passionate in the education space. So we had a few coffees and we decided like, hey, I'm getting funded. Why don't you come on and be my co-founder? Because that was the word that I was throwing around. It's like, how do you find a co-founder? I was like, why don't you come and be my co-founder? Uh, I was like, just got married like that. You know, like, that was crazy. I didn't know how to phrase it at the time, but the, the way I phrase it now, and this is still a deep belief that I have and something I'm really passionate about, is that intelligence that you've equally distributed across the world the opportunities are not. That was a big reflection of how I grew up in the sense of when I was in Taiwan, there were a lot more kids who were a lot more intelligent than me. But I got lucky I got to come and they didn't get the same opportunity I had. And now our lives are drastically different. I'm a lot more privileged than they are, but we came from the same place. And so, yeah, we kind of saw that. And that's when Lambda School first started. It was like a year in and they were doing essentially what a lot of coding bootcamps were doing, like General Assembly, where they were teaching people to code and retransitioning them from a non-technical background into becoming a software engineer. And that was a massive growing job market at the time. I think it still is. And it was so competed against that it was paid like six figure plus for some of the exit jobs. And that was a lot of money at the time. You know, that's still a lot of money now, for sure. One of the big problems with these coding bootcamps, and I guess university as well, is that you take a loan or they charge you upfront without guaranteeing you the success of what you do afterwards. And so Lambda School did the thing where like, we will teach you and we'll charge you nothing upfront until you get hired. And the way they do that is legally call something an income share agreement, an ISA, where once you get paid, essentially you start to be able to repay that loan and then you pay a percentage of your salary up to a certain amount. We really like that because we were obviously for uni students and for us to want to retransition, that seems like a very attractive option. So we decided we want to solve that problem. And we started to speak to a lot of people and we realized that one of the biggest problems students have is getting a job. And so we wanted to create that and build that. And we had a lot of tough, tough lessons because I think building co-create is something that's a lot more shorter term. Like you could put something in and you can see an outcome immediately. The way the outcome is measured is like you measure a revenue, one of the key drivers of a business. But then when you start to build something like this, you're thinking years into the future. You're thinking like a year down the track. How do I validate? How do I build this? And then you have to figure out incrementally then how do you ship things incrementally that then like lead you to the outcome. 
So it requires a very different like mindset of thinking. You need to have a much longer term and then be able to then break that down into smaller pieces of things. That and Australia didn't have the equivalent of it, ISA, right? We didn't do it through ISA. We were trying to do it through recruiter fees because we know nothing about law, and we thought paying for lawyers at the time was super expensive, and we couldn't afford it. So we decided to do it through a different model. We we're trying to do recruiter fees, or we we're trying to go speak to tech companies who would hire these students. I think, irrespective of how we charged, we knew it was important that we get people hired. That was the success metric that we were trying to do. So that was how the business started. We didn't end well. Me and Mish reflected on this later on. We weren't aligned on the same thing, whether it was for the business or for our life's outcome, how we see we want to live our lives. Because when you take on a business, it's like a marriage, right? It becomes a huge part of your life, and you both need to have a strong why of why you're doing it. So later on, Mitch obviously left after six months. He had the change of mind, and he realized that he wanted to go be a software engineer. And I think from doing the business, he knew like, wow, it pays a lot. And also, the business was going through a tough time. We were very inexperienced, and we didn't know how to spend the investors' money wisely. And we also burned a lot of cash. Plus, I also front up a lot of the profits from CoCreate that I've like accumulated over the years. So we actually burned over six figures of money for twenty-four year old and a twenty-two year old. It's a crazy amount of money to burn in six months. So that didn't go well. And the other thing we learned was it was a really hard market because the students that we wanted to reach, the different stakeholders like public education company has right, like the student we wanted. They aren't always aware that these like kind of coding bootcamp was an option for them. So if your customer aren't aware of the problem, it becomes a much more difficult problem to have to work out. I suppose that they're aware of it and you know how to find them because you have to re-educate them on the whole thing and gain that trust for them to commit six months a year of learning with you in some way. And then we were trying to go for students, which was wrong because we were trying to change the perspective. Because we both like came out of university and we're like, nah, this is wrong. And so we're trying to like go back to university students and try and. Tell them like, don't go into the big company. Like, you need to come and do this. Come and do our course, and we'll connect you with hot startup at the time. So they were like startup we were talking to that were hiring like Canva, for example, which later become massive. It was really small at the time. Canva was small at the time. In fact, the lead recruiter that I spoke with, Scott, he's still there. He's been there for six plus years, almost as long as I built CoCreate and Cody. But yeah, and then what I realized is the saying people were saying like, you know, bad founders in a good market, market wins. Good founders in a market, market wins. So I realized that we were trying to change the market. From the university student, they didn't want it, but we were just trying to put it down for what they want.、Uh, so it didn't work. And then lastly, the tech ecosystem in Australia wasn't very built out. Was still very small. There wasn't a lot of VC money going around, and so there wasn't a lot of capacity to hire software and entry level software engineering level. You just think about the level of hierarchy that they're in, and they were looking for more senior people who would just come in and and just start building and adding value. So it's actually very difficult to make that work using that model, and then eventually we ran out of money, and then it left. I was struggling to do everything on my own again, and I was extremely burnt out. I need to take a break. And you've written before that Cody was actually a vital part of your identity, and having to quit basically left you a dark hole inside. I mean, what was the plan after that? Yeah, growing up, my academic, which translated to work achievements, has always been. A huge part of how I measure my self worth. This is the first time in my life where I've actually put down my sword and go, "Okay, guys, I'm out of gas. I don't find anything left. I was going so far negative. I got nothing left." I think people around me could see that. Like I was 25, so as any people would, they go traveling. I had less than 10k at the time, and I needed to rebuild my finances. One of my friend I met throughout this period, he was like, "Do you want to come to Vietnam?" I was like, "Yeah, I'll be here on Tuesday." I booked a ticket. To go to Ho Chi Minh, which is Saigon, 
He just sent me a hostel address, and I'm literally jumping on a plane to go to a foreign country to meet a friend at a hostel. I got scammed right out of the airport with the taxi drivers. Obviously, they just charged me triple or something. It looked like you had a lot of fun. You charted quite a lot of it on your Instagram, and you were punting the Vietnamese version of punting on the river as well. There was this lady who was selling a one dollar lantern. You bought all of it. Yeah, yeah. Vietnam was a lot of fun. I think I just party and de-stress. The rest of it has been a lot about soul searching, and I continue to do that across different cities and different countries across the world. One of the things that I learned throughout that journey was, despite how hard things may seem, I learned that in in many ways I was very lucky because I'm suddenly in a world where it was even more underdeveloped than Taiwan, where I was from, and this grandma who was. Super old, standing there trying to sell these lanterns, and she was just sold everything. I asked her, "How many do you have?" And like she counted, it was like, you know, it wasn't much. Like you know, and as she sold them a dollar at a time, she would have only made fifty dollars that day, and no one was buying it. She was standing there. It was late at night. It was ten p.m. And obviously, like fifty dollars was a lot for me at the time, but I feel it would mean so much more to her than it would mean for me if I had just spent that. I'll just go bunk in a hostel, right? And so I gave it to her, and my friend who was with me at the time, and she took a photo of of this whole thing. She looked really happy, inspired what you've explained of her situation. She looked really, really happy. Yeah, and I think later on I realized being able to give, give to people, has been one of the biggest kind of joy in my life, and so that's also become one of my life's highest values. And so throughout that, I realized I had so much to be grateful for in my life, despite losing. Pretty much all the finances I had at the time, losing the career ladder I've been building so hard towards. I also realized I lost a lot of friends. But then throughout all that journey, I realized I actually have other real friends who were there giving the money to the grandma was one of them. And where I realized I was so grateful and so fortunate that I get to be in a position to give that to her. You actually wrote a really long blog post about the entire experience. And one of the things that I took away from that was that you said that it's important to ask your friends, your family, your mentors for their read on you because. It's a good way of telling who you are. So, were you doing that as well while finding yourself on this journey? And what was the plan after all that? Yeah, yeah, that was one of the questions I go around asking people the most. And I met this guy who was a close friend of my mentor. He built this like car cushion factory, and he does about fifty mil a year at the time. He employed two thousand people, and so he ended up talking to me. You know, we talked and stuff. And then towards the end, yeah, I just go, hey, so before we finish, I want to ask you this: What's your read of me? And then I tell them the thing, and、um, any surprising things that you learn from people. I think they may come across as a surprise at first, but then once you sit with it for a little bit, I think deep down we all kind of knew who we were. A good example of what I said earlier was when I sat down last year at my university. I was like, okay, I like technology. I want to teach, and I like kids.、And、the answer for me was I didn't like where that was going to lead me, but they were the truth. Some friends were obviously very honest with you, and I think it's on us as well to be open minded. To not be defensive and to kind of take those in. So the positive as well as the things to improve and things to work on. Because I think like ultimately people share not out of spite or trying to put you down. They share because they want a possibility of building a better relationship with you as opposed to taking it apart.、Um, so one of the persons that you met was Andre. How did that happen? Because he was pivotal in you getting your first proper job, right? Yeah, people who probably don't know, I met a guy called Andre who was the first hire in product and growth at Canva, who later became the the head of growth there, who ran all the growth counterparts. I bump into him because I was 
doing a bit of fun track side work while I was kind of, so I spend the time in traveling Southeast Asia, which is really cheap to rebuild up, co-create and, and rebuild up the business so that I could be in a financially stable-ish place. But then doing that's really tough. I took on a few contractor gigs with my friend who's building this other company that was named Rob. We both have this thing where we're both extremely curious. And so he will learn something, he'll share them with me. And I'll try and learn it and stuff like that. And so obviously through the journey of learning, part of the thing we want to learn was how do we build better companies? How do we build better things? We would do LinkedIn outreach to people and ask them to mentor us. Rob came up with this thing. I couldn't do it because I I wasn't like rich enough, but he would go message people and he would go, hey, I recently came up with your profile, blah, blah, blah. I really liked it. I was hoping to ask you to teach me about how you did X or Y. So he actually did this to a lot of famous people. He did it to like the guy who wrote um, Atomic Habits, James Clear. And he actually got conversation with James Clear and lots of different people. Oh, wow. So what was the success rate and how many people took up it that? It was pretty high. But then it's a caveat because when you reach out to these people, you don't really know how good they are until you deeply know their work and get to know them. And so the caveat here is anyone who would want to make the 500 from you, they're actually not that great because anyone who's like done great work and made their due wouldn't care about the 500. They would just do it. So it was actually a bit of a test on the other side as well. It's a bit like Clubhouse, right? Where there were so many rooms of people teaching others how to be rich. Exactly. It's like the the most successful people don't make a course to teach people how to be rich unless they're really passionate about just building things. But in this case, this is a purely an exchange of service. That's what he did. And then I follow along. And that's how we reach out to Andre. And yeah, obviously Andre totally like passed it. And just we, we had a chat. And then we ended up from the first conversation where like we were kids trying to fumble around, trying to figure things out. And we're like, well, this guy is like Yoda, but in growth and product. And yeah, we were learning about the early days of Kenla, how he built certain things. And I really admired the way he thinks and how he approached problems and stuff like that. Strategic and also like business growth perspective. So we did that for like a month like in parallel and also learning from his work at Canva. Andre introduced me to some of the team that he built at the time. And they were like all around my age. So I actually became friends with some of them. Months later, Andre was looking to transition out of Canva. He actually joined this other company called Airtasker at the time. Now I know one of the first things you do is like you got to build your team. You can't do everything yourself, which I'm going through now. But yeah, he was building his team and he was like, hey, what are you doing? And I'm like... I don't know. I'm doing a bit of contract work for Rob and then I'm just chilling out in Ubud in Bali and playing with monkeys. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm running my coding school on the side, trying to make a bit of passive income. And so Andre's like, um, well, I'm going to Airtasker and I'll be hiring. So if you want to come back, let me know. I sat on it for two weeks. And then at the time we returned back to Australia, I reached out to Andre on LinkedIn, right? I, I did I did, I did, did my version of the outreach without the money, but I did. But the way I approach it is I actually, so because I couldn't, I don't offer the 500 because I actually couldn't pay it. Like Rob actually pays it to, to get to find out the answers. I wasn't prepared to do that. I was prepared to pay 50, 100. That's where I was at. But then I don't think it would be an insult. They wouldn't take it as nicely. So I don't know. So I end up just, instead of doing that, I did the work, right? I read the thing about doing cold outreach and was people just send you outreach and expect you to give you their time and you've, you've done no work, right? So I realized that, okay, well, if I'm reaching out to people who are, more accomplished than me at the time, I need to do the work. And so I went and scoured the internet and, and social media of every piece of thing that they've ever written, they've ever shared, everything they've ever worked on. I went really deep and I, I try and understand what they do, how they think and stuff like that. And then I will share that in a conversation in the first message. And they will realize like, wow, I've gone through so much steps to learn about who they are and 
And that's how I did my approaches. I did that with school outreach and I later applied that to these kind of stuff. I do that too. I reach out to people and you get that comment saying, oh, because it was such a thoughtful email, I would love to speak with you. It makes sense. People just do it and they don't think about it. They just stop for a moment and think you're asking them for time. And if they're working in a scaling up company, they're really busy. It's not that they don't want to help. So yeah, I, I came back, I reached out to Andre on LinkedIn. I also made an application and I went through a lot of his early blogs. And then he was like, look, I'll hire you, but you got to go through the HR process. Because Airtasker now is the largest marketplace for services in Australia. But at the time it was burning $30 million annually. Mm. So it could... That job could be no- It didn't bother me at all because for me, I had nothing to lose at this point. I burnt the career that I was trying to build to the ground. One of my inspirations was Steve Jobs. And the other one is Jack Ma, who built Alibaba at the time, was massive five years ago. And he he had this famous saying, everybody wants to start a company. Don't rush. I spent my 20s working at KFC and then being a teacher. And that taught me a lot of things I need to learn to build Alibaba during my 30s. And so he talked about spend your 20s learning, spend your 30s building, and you haven't built something, spend your 40s working and excelling, you know, like at something, and then spend your 50s mentoring, giving back, and then 60s are for family and whatever. So, okay, I'll, I'll take a slower step. And so one of my big focus was like, I wanted to find a place where I can learn. The side of the business of burning actually excited me. I read all these things on building startup, but I don't know how to apply them. Andre, I said to him, look, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I want to come. I want to learn and I feel like I've read all these things, but it's until I actually go do them, do I actually learn something? And I think he really liked that. And they don't, I reflected on it, that that is a quality that I want to see in, in someone that I hire is that they want to get their hand dirty. And that kind of taught me an important lesson in life, which is within every crisis, there's an opportunity waiting to be discovered. The, the crisis of the business create a new opportunity for the business to innovate. Um, in a wartime. And so one of the early things we did as we built out the growth team there, we we engineer what we call growth loop. So it was, what is this mechanism that allows the company to grow? And we needed a different one to grow because the current one is burning so much money that the business will die if we don't do that in six to nine months. Clearly the founding team at the time didn't know what to do because otherwise they wouldn't be there in the first place. You have a lot of freedom and autonomy to go do things and that creates an environment where you get to go and touch a lot of different things and learn from that. What was the thing that helped to turn it around? Because then it was growing by 50% year and year, right? It's a long kind of process. But instead of just thinking, oh, you do marketing and product, they're all interconnected. And I think that's what ultimately growth is. Growth, look at it holistically and you combine everything together. And I think my engineering background helped a little bit in the sense that you applied an engineering thinking, a systems thinking to, to a problem. And so essentially we look at the company as they have multiple different parts of the system, but it all works as a whole. And so one of the systems that was failing and that was burning a lot of money was that this company was built on brand marketing and a lot of handing out gift cards to people. And one of the fundamental things that we think was not working was there's no need to double this company. It's not the job of brand marketing to do that. And the other thing with handing out gift cards, one is very hard to attribute. You're losing money fast, right? So that your, your money is going out to pay for this rent and you don't have an income. You definitely want to be very clear about every dollar you spend, how well is that being spent as opposed to just spending it. And I think the company wasn't doing that. The last thing was when you hand out discounts to acquire customers, it, it fundamentally attracts different kind of customer who only tried your product, not because they, they, they truly have a very painful problem. They're all oh, because there's a discount. So I think if you don't find the right kind of customer you're looking for, and so one of the first things we did was we rebuilt the customer acquisition engine. 
Um, a lot of this great work's done by Andre and Elise. And so one of the things we discovered was Airtasset in many ways is Amazon. The competitive advantage of a company is that we are a massive directory of not goods, but services. And we have people behind those services all over the region. And through that, you are able to create a massive content directory on the web. And similar to Amazon, a lot of people search for these problems. A lot of people search for like Amazon search for this book name or people search for a certain product and services with the intent to want to buy them or compare them. We can suddenly do that with services that people are looking for. So a cleaner, they're trying to compare cleaner. They're trying to find a removalist. Um, they're trying to find a handyman for certain things. And they were able to do that. One of the other things that to, to kind of, you know, we realized was that it's a horizontal marketplace as opposed to a vertical one, which means we focus across everything and anything as opposed to focus on a niche which is very counterintuitive to what most people advise in a startup. And, and in postmodern, I think our belief was we don't think Airtasset would have survived as a specialized niche because you don't have the enough revenue market sizes for, for you to build out, say, if you just focus on, we just do cleaning, right? We just do delivery. The other thing was liquidity in marketplace is really important. It's about network effect. And so how quickly can you book something on demand? Like how quickly can you get Uber there? It's really important. And so being able to have workers who can jump across different verticals or they can be acquired through one vertical, but then also say, I can work in this other vertical becomes really valuable and integral to the experience of the marketplace and how quick people can get the help that they need, which adds to the value of the product. We re-engineer how we acquire users through building content directories and then generating those and then looking for problems that people are searching for, comparing, very similar to how Amazon kind of built out their, their directory engines. Um, so we took a lot of learning from Amazon. And then the other thing we kind of started doing was instead of just doing these are very expensive pay TV brands, we still do them. We realized there is a place for it, but it just wasn't well understood. We later understood brand has an important place in terms of when you need to do a complex or expensive services, trust is very important. And so you actually need to build brand to help convert people. And so a lot of another counterintuitive thing that people think about is, oh, people are like not converting to become paid customers. It's because you have too many steps. You need to like make it simple. I think that is true. It applies to a lot of certain products, but it didn't apply to us. In fact, like we added more steps into the product and it actually increases customer conversions because when you want something complex like a removalist, we actually added things like, what are the furnitures? What are the things look like? And that actually makes the customer deeply trust us because they know that we understand the problem and how to solve it. And we actually then help them match better workers for that job. So that was like all these really counterintuitive things we have to think from my first principle and rediscover. The last thing probably around that system, obviously we did a whole overhaul of a lot of different parts of the company. But the, the last thing kind of looked at was instead of doing this really expensive brand marketing, we realized is that there's a new engine that we could build that is free. Uh, and we do that through partnerships. So what happened was we could actually partner up with um, a mattress company in Australia. And what we did was, oh, we want you to test mattresses and we'll pay people. We'll put up a thing on our platform, say, we'll pay you $2,000 to test sleep on this mattress for a night and leave a review. And that goes viral because people are like, wow, you're going to pay me like five grand, two grand to go sleep on a mattress. And so people start competing and that gets shit around socially so much. It blew up and then it became very easy for us to get free TV coverages. Instead of as TV ads becomes a newsworthy thing that we can like pitch to TV station and stuff. 
And we could repeat that over and over again for virtually very little cost, as opposed to paying like hundreds of thousand dollars on TV ads. We could repeat that over and over again. So we did like puppies. We will partner up with dog walking services, or we can partner up with like Guide Dog Australia or something like that. And then these things become like socially shared and they just get massive coverages, which build to the brand and get the name out there. But those are some examples. Um, obviously, there was much more. So Airtasker ended up IPOing in 2021, but you left. Before that, why would you leave when the company is doing so well? Yeah, I think again, right? Like, if you look at like why I started the work and why I started the role, I was driven by curiosity, and I was driven. I think the way I put it, I was driven by growth. Like, I value growth, and I want. I'm curious, and I want to learn. I want to keep growing. That's kind of where I was. I think like for anyone who's kind of gone through an IPO, or, or for those who haven't, I guess the mentality of a company building towards IPO is one that is fairly conservative. It's not something that you will want to take big bets. Essentially, you want to continue what you're doing, and a lot of your focus is a big part of your focus is that is to go prepare for a successful public offering. And so, I think the business towards the tail end of that six month focus a lot more on that. And then post IPO, I think it becomes a very different company because now you're managing public expectations and stuff. And so, I think part of the sentiment was a lot of the big bets that we wanted to take that we were able to take we essentially stripped out entire functions of the company and told them this is no longer required and be able to reinvent how things work over time we start to lose more and more of that right like yeah so i was exploring what does my next step looks and so that was one of the reasons i left and ultimately sabah the current founders from lead we connected he kind of reached out looking for head of growth and we connected it through LinkedIn again. And he kind of said, hey, would you be interested in joining Veed at like, it was just around 10 people at the time. And it took me a few months of just learning about Sabah, learning about the team and kind of deciding. And then ultimately I was, yep, yeah, okay, I'll come. And then I, I make the leap. And Veed has really grown in this period of time. So what was your task when you first joined and how has it changed over time? Yeah, Veed has grown a lot over the last 18 months since I've been there. The company, for one, has gone from 10 to 100 plus people. It was bootstrapped throughout its time until a month ago with recently closed our first fundraising round with Sequoia of um, 35 million. Throughout that period, obviously, because we were bootstrapped, so the people count means like our revenue, our profit grew along with the hiring at a profitable rate. So my learning along with that, I guess, yeah, me and Saba talked about this. It was like every three months, we would have a conversation and be like, I think your job is now this and I need to go do that new job. We have to constantly do new things. So like the first little bit was I was doing a lot of things with my hands dirty because that was a, a big value part that I've learned from Airtasa and learning mastery and watching Andre work was he was not just a VP that told people what to do. He knew deeply how to do those things and he could spot the difference between good and great and amazing and world-class from a mile away. And I really admire that in a manager and in someone who built things is, yeah, they ultimately knows what they're doing. Not all of it, but the, the part that they do know, they deeply understand it. It's mastery, right? Like it's an Olympic athlete in many ways. They do one thing, they do it really well. And so a lot of the early days of having me getting my hands dirty again and building those things and communicating to the founders like, hey, this is what I'm going to do. This is what's going to change in the department. I'm going to kill all these things and focus on these and then just proving that out over the next few months and making sure we are winning based on those things to build that trust and build that direction with a team and with, with everyone in the company. And then very quickly that transition into running the team a little bit and then doing it alongside them, coaching them to having more stakeholders in the company and how we restructure, how we like to fight our roles and responsibilities, what's the strategy, and then going to like, okay, we got to keep running the team. But then we started having to talk with like a lot of VCs for fundraising and stuff like that. Do we raise? Do we not raise? We also receive a lot of acquisition offers from 
really big brand companies that you would definitely heard of. And it was also a big decision, I guess, for the team, but mostly for Sabah and the founders around what is their why for building V, because the exit would have netted them like hundreds of millions. But obviously now looking at that, they, they, they didn't proceed with it. It's something that you really have to dig into your why to kind of answer the question off. To, I guess, now post a raise, it allows us at V to think about, instead of like living month to month, literally paycheck to paycheck as a company, we can now think about investing into our product, solving problems on a much longer time horizon and without having to always have to look for a return on the next month. Otherwise, we will be burning cash and that would be very stressful. You said that you're also hiring as well. So can you give a bit of insight just in terms of who you're looking for, what they can expect. Yeah, I think at Veed, what we're hiring for changes from time to time. Right now we're hiring a lot and it's up on our job pages. So you can check that out. Or you can, if you're interested, you can kind of just DM me on Twitter. I think that's easier because my DM's open. Otherwise I'm on LinkedIn too. So I think one of the big things in the company is that we really value kind of support between the people and stuff like that and just looking after the people. And so that was one of the core things that we look for in people that we hire. Other thing I guess we look for beyond from that aspect of the culture of the team is that we look for people who think for themselves. Their first principle, they kind of like go off their own why, I guess, in the theme of this podcast. And I think people that often jump into very ambiguous, unclear problems at some point in their life, whether it's through my journey of starting a company or they decided to go be a reporter and speak seven different languages. Or, you know, there's several people, right? One of them is a YouTuber. One of them decided to become an influencer. One of them decided to quit investment banking to teach disability kids and write poetry. Just people who solve really like difficult problems in their life. Because I think if you're able to solve difficult problems in other contexts, yeah, I think you'd be able to solve difficult problems in the context of building a fast-growing tech company. I think people who are growth-minded, I think are always great. Because if you're always learning and you've always been learning, it's inevitable that you will become better over time. I think people who communicate well being a really critical one. So as the company scales, you know, how you clearly communicate with everybody around, this is what I'm doing, here's why it's important, and be able to not just like be able to communicate to your manager, your team, but also be able to rally different people to come and get excited about the course that you're doing. You know, people always say like, oh, they want a flat company structure. They hate hierarchies. Well, if you don't have hierarchy, then you've got to be really good at influencing and, and exciting people on here's what we need to go do next. So those are important. And that's um, interesting because V is actually remote first. So you have to be able to do that virtually. Yeah, you got to do that virtually. So V is remote first. So at 10 people, when I joined, we have teams from three different continents. Um, now at 100 plus people, we have people from all the continents on, on the face of the earth. We don't have anyone from Antarctica, but we don't count that. And so, yeah, a lot of your communications are remote. Uh, there's no office, there's no face-to-face. And a lot of the communications are asynchronous. And a lot of communications are with people who are from very different cultural backgrounds to you. And I realize the communication styles of people are very, very different. And yeah, you got to seek to like understand and, and learn and, and be curious about that too. And so those are all kind of key things. The last bit of thing I would add is I personally think I really value, like I think as a team, we really value originality. And again, and a, a very conventional thing, like people say in a startup, it's like, oh, ideas are cheap, execution is everything. I think there's truth in that, but I would say ideas aren't cheap. I think if we've worked on this problem full-time for years and here we met someone who come in propose a new idea that has a massive impact and is able to explain to us very quickly why that is, I think that adds a lot of value to the team. And so we really value originality and how people 
approach their why again behind how they arrive at that answer, which are usually non-conventional. It's not like, oh, this other company do it, so you should do it too. But it's like, what well, if you think about it, this makes sense. And they're not obvious. So yeah. So speaking of why, do you feel like you have found your why after this entire journey? I think I haven't. I think there are parts that I think are important to me and I get a lot of fulfillment out of them in my life and I'll continue to do them. So things I think I already mentioned a little bit around giving back, curiosity and growth. Other things that, you know, I really value in the day-to-day has been like health and other things like that on a high level directionally. I think I'm roughly correct directionally. And these are very value-driven. And then I'm kind of more experimenting. The part I'm figuring out is in the big direction, but it's more like incrementally, how do I get closer and closer to that? Which I don't know if I want to talk about, but it's the perfect day we spoke about briefly. But. Go for it. Yeah, I think like one of the exercises um, I started doing was this exercise called like your perfect day. And essentially it's an exercise where if you were to sit down at any point in your life right now and think about what would your perfect day look like? Even if you were to have one day left on this planet, if you were to have a year left, five years, 10 years left, how would you live that perfect day over and over again? And I think it's really important to go through this exercise because a lot of us set goals. Oh, I will want to start my own business. I want to make this much money. I want to buy a house. But these are in the future. And the truth is you only experience things right here and now, the present, the day that you have. That's all you've got. And so when you start to set that, it becomes a very different experience of like, how am I getting there? Is what I'm doing today aligned with things I'm talking about? And if it's not, do I really want those things? Or is there something I need to change in my day to get me closer to that? The other realization is you start to realize a lot of things in your perfect day are actually very achievable and you've been putting it off in your life for way too long than you realized. So in my perfect day, one of the things was I want to wake up early in the morning and go exercise, whether that's a surfing or something. I recently started boxing in the morning. And so, yeah, doing something like that. And that is really achievable for me to do right now. It means say I have 18 hours waking day and I do boxing for two hours. I'm more than just over 10% towards my perfect day already, just by waking up early in the morning and going to boxing and meditating. I want to have my breakfast. That's already my perfect day. And then what I want to do for work, or I want to work with great, amazing people. And I've been moving myself towards that. And I think at V, we definitely have a huge amount of that. You realize you can start moving very clearly towards what you need. It's much more actionable, much more clear. You can do today, which is quite empowering for anyone to realize. So yeah, that's the perfect day exercise. Do you think in the longer term, what kind of a legacy you want to leave behind? Yeah, I know we spoke about this. I don't. I don't think about what kind of legacy I want to leave behind. I think about how I want to help people and give back. And I will figure out how to do that to the best of my ability. And in terms of, again, like setting a legacy, I think it's something that is in the future and a lot of it might not be within my control. So I think where I felt most power and most empowered and do my best work was when I'm playing and having fun. And also like just, you know, like when I was teaching and building courses for kids, around technology when these courses did not exist at all, like anywhere in the world for that matter. And so that's kind of been my approach towards it. So what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? I I don't know. I think success are defined by everyone. This concept called a time billionaire and the concept very simple essentially says Warren Buffett is super rich and in many ways people think of him as super successful in his field. But if I were to give you a chance to switch life with him, most people wouldn't take it because they don't have time. Similarly, I apply this to me and Steve Jobs. It's like Steve Jobs, super successful role model in many ways of building things, designing things and marketing things. But would I switch my life with his? I probably wouldn't given how he lived and stuff like that. And so I think success in one way is about 
recognizing that, like having your own original thoughts and, and opinion and knowing what those are and what you truly value um, and discovering those. And then be able to spend the only one thing that is uncertain that we have, which is your time, be wealthy in your time in spending it around the thing that you truly value. Success is a story that many people you know, listen to others tell them or other people tell themselves or the movie tells you about. But ultimately, yeah, just try to be a time billionaire and spend it on the things that you deeply value. For me, that's my health, freedom, that's, that's giving back to people, that is deep and meaningful relationship with friends and family. I think at V, we had this conversation once with someone. It was both the decision of, does he want to sell or does he want to continue? And this thing made an impression on me that kind of I hold on to now. And that's one of my guiding principles, which is we, we have very short amount of time here in this life. And so the best way to spend it is to spend time with good friends and family that we love, go build cool stuff that we have fun doing. And then with the other time we have left, just go and travel and explore different cool corners of the world. That's there for us to explore and travel and available to us. And that's it. And where can people go to connect with you, find out more about what you're doing at V? If you want to find me, I have my website, vincentway.co, which I also write my newsletter to talk a bit more about, I guess, like financial education. I've been getting into like crypto, NFT, and I've been a bit more open of how I've built my own finances and my investments and stuff as a, or businesses really, all of those as a pursuit of freedom, as a pursuit of how do you guys then be able to do that so that I have more time to go and spend on my health, like spending with my friends and family and all that kind of stuff. The newsletter is called New Wells. It's on Substack. And then I'm also on Twitter, which is at Vinnyway, V-I-N-N-I, and then my last name, W-E-I. Like I said, my DM is open. So if you're curious, you want to come and work at V, or you just want to reach out and connect, yeah, I'd love to hear from you and hang out. And I'll include all those in the show notes so people can find you easily. And is there anything else before we close that you'd like to share? Yeah, I, I think reflecting back on this journey, I realized that I am very lucky and very fortunate. While it's not all smooth and bumps, but I met a lot of amazing, amazing people through just verse connecting us and things happens. So I just want to say thank you to all those people. Obviously, like my parents, my family, but also a lot of the people that I've encountered through work uh, and also my friends who supported me through some of these are. Uh, not so fun times and, and the people who like talk to me and who's decided to open their doors to me and stuff like that. Yeah. Thank you. And super grateful. And it's become one of the driving forces of why I want to do that back to others as well, where I can, where I can. So yeah, thank you. And that was the end of episode 72. The show notes and transcript can be found at sodismyway.com forward slash 72. And stay tuned for next Sunday, because we'll be meeting an English journalist who has been working in China and Hong Kong for the past two decades. He shares how he first got into the industry, what it's like working in a country not entirely known for its freedom of speech, and how he's creating community with a new brand he has launched under the Tetler brand, featuring some of the brightest young leaders of today. If you want to learn more, don't forget to subscribe and see you next Sunday.